Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today to hear from God's word. It's especially good to be with you on New Year's Eve. For some reason, New Year's has always been one of my favorite holidays of the year. I feel like it gets a bad treatment. It's at the end of this long gauntlet of holidays and we just kind of, we're ready to get back to work maybe. I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm excited about that. But if you're like me, you're worn down from a long year and a busy fall and a very grueling month of December. We did way too much in December. Can I get an amen? So like every day was planned and it, it was worth it. We wouldn't cancel anything, but man, it was exhausting. And here we are at the end of the year and we're tired and we're broken and we're worn down and we're just ready for a fresh start. And New Year's always seemed to give that kind of burst, if you will, kind of that, that restart. I actually found a, um, a picture online. This is the great thing about the internet. This is how I feel right now. Like, yeah, 2018. <laughs> There's always some horribly Photoshopped image online that kind of expresses your mood. So there we go. But I was looking at it this morning and I, I'm not sure he's going to make it. <laughs> what do you think? I think he's going to the ocean, which let's hope that's not how 2018 starts. But something about New Year's always snaps me out of the funk and I just, you, you've been down and tired and discouraged and it's, I know it's psychological, but in a couple of hours, we get to throw away the calendar. You know, we get to throw away 2017 and file it. And all of our hard, hardships and weaknesses and failures and flaws, they're just in the past. And we get to bring out that fresh calendar and, and see on it nothing, which means that the year is filled with potential. We're gonna finally be the people that we've always wanted to be. This is the year, right? We're gonna pay off that credit card debt. We're gonna burn off those calories. We're gonna go to bed on time. We're gonna read our Bibles this year. This is, this is the excitement of New Year. And I'm not sure if you write down a list or if you're thinking about it, but it seems culturally, it seems like all of us are thinking about ways to improve our lives next year. What are we gonna do in the new year? And I think for the most part, it's a great idea. God calls us, to a life of devotion. One of the fruits of the spirit is self-discipline. And so if we've been lazy, I hope God reveals that to us and we can get to work. That's a good thing. Resolutions are wonderful and I'm by no means this morning want to discourage that idea. But before we jump into the, the new year, I'd like to turn our attention to a text that's been very important to me as I've, I've been thinking about plans for the future. God sometimes brings us to the end of ourselves for a reason. And before we stuff our weaknesses, I, I know a lot of times I'm thinking about 2018, I wanna, I wanna compensate for all the weaknesses and make myself feel good again and make myself feel strong again. And so I'm gonna do all of these things to, to build myself up. But before we do that, I want us to explore a very important text. So if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter four. 2 Corinthians four. I hope this text gives us some thoughts as we process the new year. It's a rich chapter. It has always been one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, but in order to understand it, it would help to get some historical context. If you've ever read First and Second Corinthians, you know that Paul had a very um, tricky relationship with the Corinthian church, but it didn't always, it wasn't always like that. It didn't start that way, in other words. The, the book of Acts chapter 18 tells us that um, Paul got there actually quite discouraged. He had just left Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, Thessalonica, and he was leaving those towns with discouragement. He got beaten up in Philippi and nearly escaped persecution in the other two cities. And so when he got to Corinth around 50 AD, he was, he was beat down. He was discouraged. But Paul came to him in a vision at the beginning of his time there, and he said, be faithful, Paul. I've got people here. Just preach the gospel clearly. And so Paul did. And people were saved. It was incredible. There was a revival in the town of Corinth. And even the synagogue leader, think about this. Even the synagogue leader, a guy named Crispus, 
believed in Christ. How incredible would that be if you're in, uh, the synagogue leader turns to Jesus? So it was an encouraging season for Paul. The church in Corinth was flourishing. People were growing. And so he decided it was time to leave. About two years later, he went across the bay and spent three really good years in Ephesus. But as, as often happened, when Paul left the town, the church fell apart. This is why Paul wrote so many letters in the New Testament. He's checking in on the churches that he started. Corinth fell apart. As soon as he left, some other men came in to build on Paul's foundation. Some of them were faithful. Apollos, Peter, they built on the gospel, but many people saw an opportunity and the crooks came in and they manipulated the gospel to make a quick buck and they led the church astray. They peddled the gospel and destroyed the church. And so within a couple of years after the establishment of this church, they were deeply divided and deeply hurting. They, were argue, they had a competitive spirit. They were arguing about spiritual gifts. It was just a mess. And so they started comparing the various leaders that had come through Corinth. And they all started picking their favorites. And as you could expect, Paul didn't come out very well. You know, these new preachers, they were gifted. They could preach really good. They were like 2.0. You know, they, they came in and they could preach really fancy messages. They were wealthy. Man, they were good looking. They, they just seemed more put together than Paul did. It was like a breath of fresh air. I know, imagine they preached Jesus. I imagine it was, they sang Christian songs and they did a lot of Christian things, but they started de-emphasizing the cross and making their messages more appealing to their fellow Corinthians. And it looked like the church was doing great. But suddenly, Paul started looking less and less appealing to the Corinthians. He looked kind of sloppy. I mean, he was always suffering. He was always being put in jail. He was always getting kicked out of cities. I mean, the, can we say it out loud? Like, would, would God really allow one of his servants to struggle like that? It almost seemed like God was against Paul. Where was Paul's faith? He wasn't like the new men that had come into town. This is the backdrop for 2 Corinthians. Paul had largely been rejected. And so he took up the awkward but necessary task of defending his ministry. Now, you have to understand, he wasn't hurt because he had been rejected. Paul could have handled that. He was hurt because they had rejected his weakness and they had rejected his suffering and they said, that's not what a Christian looks like. And Paul knew that that meant they were rejecting the very gospel. And so 2 Corinthians is a defense of his ministry, but really it's a defense of the gospel. He's preaching, um, he's wanting to show them that this, this message of self-improvement and social climbing, they had moved away from the cross. And they had lost the gospel. And so in this letter, one of the things Paul's trying to accomplish is he's trying to show the Corinthians what true gospel ministry looks like. It is incredibly glorious. It is beautiful. It is harder, but it is incredible. So let's start with the glory that comes with Paul's ministry. Actually, let me give you the outline before I jump into the outline. Here we go. Chapter four is in the middle of a very long argument that Paul's trying to establish here. And so we're gonna catch it in the middle of the argument, but here's the three points that I wanna give to you. First, we'll see the glory that comes with the ministry in the new covenant. It's a beautiful ministry. It's glorious. It's incredible. But second, we'll see the weakness that accompanies that ministry. The, the ministers of the covenant are weak. Third, we'll see the hope it comes with this ministry. It's glorious, it comes in weakness, but it is extremely hopeful for his servants. Paul's essentially saying that his lifestyle, the gospel-shaped life is better. It's harder, but it's better. 
So here we go. Let's start with the glory that comes with Paul's ministry. Look at the first six verses. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we're picking up Paul's argument in the middle. We're kind of jumping in the middle of the stream here. But you can tell very clearly what Paul's trying to accomplish in this is he's trying to, he's trying to compare his ministry, the glories of the new covenant ministry with the ministry of the false prophets and the false teachers, false apostles. You can see it in his tone. Since we have this ministry, we're very bold. We don't lose heart. We're not disgraceful like they were. We don't deceive like they have been doing. We refuse to practice cunning. We don't tamper with God's word. We just preach it clearly. We don't preach ourselves. Paul's taking some shots at the false teachers that were doing all of these things. They were preaching and leading and ministering in such a way that was getting reaction, but it wasn't changing lives. He's taking shots at them. They'd corrupted the church. He just spent chapter three, just to give you a little bit of context here, he just spent chapter three comparing these guys to Moses. Now you might think that's a wonderful comparison. Moses was a great leader. It's not a great comparison because Moses was part of the old covenant. They were dialing the clock back, going back to the, 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 the restrictions of the old covenant. These new apostles that had come into town were giving people the law. Just obey, just do this. It looked really good. It looked wonderful and shiny and great. They could preach. They had letters of recommendation. They're qualified, but Paul said, who cares? They don't have any power to transform people's lives. There's nothing behind that glamour and behind the show. This is the key difference between Paul's ministry and their ministry. They had the law. Paul had the gospel. The false teachers had to manipulate and deceive people to get results, but those results weren't effective because the law never saved anybody. The law kills. And so that was the end of the, their ministry. Paul's ministry was greater because he introduced people to the gospel. He invited them to worship Jesus Christ. He gave them the spirit of God and the spirit of God transformed the men and women in Corinth. The people, the, the, the false prophets couldn't do that. They couldn't do it. Paul's ministry is defined in, in verse, three, uh, verse 18 of chapter three, the last verse of the chapter right before this. Look at this text. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. The false teachers could impress the Corinthians, but they couldn't change them. That's what happens when you minister under the terms of the old covenant. You can impress people, but you can't change people. Paul refused to, uh, let's see, th this is the key difference. Paul was a minister of the new covenant. He brought them Christ and showed them the power of the spirit. This is why Paul didn't need to manipulate. This is why Paul didn't need to deceive. He just proclaimed the truth openly and let God do all the work. Look at verse five of chapter four again. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Paul didn't preach a message of Paul. There was no gospel of Paul. 
but we've proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's ministry under the new covenant was not about Paul. It wasn't about him. It was all about Jesus. He refused to proclaim his power because he didn't have any power. I want you to let that sink in. Paul was easily the greatest theological mind in the history of church. He brought the gospel to the, to the pagan world. Incredible what Paul did, but Paul would be the first to tell you that he didn't do a thing. He had no power to transform people's lives. All of the results that he brought in his ministry came directly from God. He was doing all the work. Paul was simply an ambassador, telling people about the gospel. God was the one that was changing lives. This is an incredible verse, verse six. The same God that said, let light shine out of darkness. As you pick up your Bible reading plan tomorrow, one of the first things that you're gonna read is that God spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light, and there was light. Paul said that the same God that spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light, spoke into our dead hearts and brought us life. This is where the life comes from. It comes from God's recreative power. He's changed our lives. As he'll say in chapter five, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new uh, creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the glory of the new covenant. It's a glorious ministry. God gets all the glory. So here's the question, and the question that you might be asking and the question that the Corinthians were certainly asking. If the new covenant ministry is so incredible, why doesn't everyone believe? Why isn't everyone saved? If it's that good, that powerful, that incredible, there's a couple of answers. Paul gives the primary answer in verses three and four. He's gonna explain why people don't all come to know Jesus. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the false teachers are saying, why, if you're so great, why aren't people flocking to you? And he gives the explanation here. If people don't see it, it's because they can't see it. They have a veil over their minds and over their hearts. It's incredible news some people can't see it. This is important for us to remember as we evangelize and as we share the, the glories of the gospel. Some people just can't see. They have a veil over their hearts. And if I could, man, I wish I had the power to remove that veil, but I'm powerless too. Paul was powerless too, but God is not. The same God that spoke into darkness speaks into hearts and he removes the veil and he gives them life. It's the power of the gospel. Let's pray to that end. Maybe it's happened to you. Maybe you know somebody that this has happened to where you've, you're explaining the gospel to them and you can see they want to believe. They just can't. I, I know people like that right now where I'm, I'm, they, they know it and they know it's true. They just can't believe it. But then one day they believe it. Just the light comes on, the light shines in and they receive the gospel. Such incredible news. I heard of a lady this week, Christmas Eve. The light came on. Praise the Lord. I, I love it when that happens. Let us pray to that end. But there's a second reason I think that people don't come to the, to the gospel. And this is probably why the, new, um, the, 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 new, the false teachers weren't embracing Paul's lifestyle. And this brings us to our second point. It's costly. It's painful. 
ministers of the new covenant go through pain. So we could say it like this. The ministry comes with glory, but it's not glorious for the minister. The ministry of the new covenant comes with great glory, but it's not always glorious for the minister. Do you hear that? The ministers of the new covenant are weak and broken vessels. This is ultimately what the Corinthians were rejecting. Look at verses seven through 12. Paul's gonna take a hard turn right here. The ministry of the new covenant's incredible, but look at seven. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I'm not gonna lie. This is a difficult text to read and a very difficult text to apply Because in this text, Paul is emphasizing our weakness, our lowliness, our brokenness, our frailty, our expendability, all the things that we know about ourselves, but we work so hard to suppress. (laughs) This is what Paul is emphasizing. He calls us jars of clay. This was like the Tupperware of the first century. You just, if it broke, ah, we'll make a new one, right? It didn't matter. It's cheap, inexpensive. There's nothing beautiful about it. You just threw it away. Have you ever, after eating a Chick-fil-A sandwich, decided that you wanted to save the cardboard wrapper? You're like, this will look good. (laughs) You bring it home and put it with your dishes or hang it on the wall. You just throw it away. And you don't think twice about it. You're not sad about throwing it away. This is a true story. When When I was in high school, my family had just come back from the beach and, and um, we're kind of suffering through the post-vacation blues and we're thinking about, ice cream's a big deal on our beach vacations. So we went to Ben and Jerry's and one of the tricks, I'll just give you a little hack right now. When you go to Ben and Jerry's, you can order like a little tiny cup and it's 18 bucks, one scoop. Or you can order a banana split. There's a trick. It's like three scoops and it's still 18 bucks, but it's like three scoops. So you get more ice cream for your money, even if you don't like banana splits. So anyway, that's kind of the trick that we figured out. We all got banana splits. And so we were back at Wendy's here in Boone and we're eating, we're eating our meal and we're thinking, we should just make banana splits. And so we decided we were gonna do it, but you can't put a banana split in a bowl. So we're eating a baked potato and we're like, this is it. <laughs> we have the perfect dish. And so no lie, we literally took those things home and we washed them out and we made our banana splits and then we threw it away. I, I just remembered it because it was so out of the norm because we actually took one of those containers home. That's the metaphor. I want you to hear that. That's the metaphor that Paul uses when he describes new covenant Christians. Weak and broken vessels. No beauty. You, you have no glory coming from yourselves. And ultimately, God doesn't need us. Let let that sink in. He doesn't need us. And yet, he graciously chooses to use us. We've been given this ministry by the mercy of God. It's a mercy that he even allows us to have this ministry. He, He gives us this ministry. But you know this has to be a very frustrating process for God because he is enlisted very proud and arrogant men and women to carry his gospel. 
And at every turn, you know this is true, whenever God does something good through us, we're like, whoo, look what I did, <laughs> right? We like to take that glory for ourselves because we're glory thieves and we wanna steal God's glory. But God patiently and gently breaks us down and weakens us so that we realize the glory comes from him. There's five images that he gives in this part of the text to describe this weakening process that God takes us through, verses eight through 10. First, we're afflicted in every way. The, the idea is that we're, we're squeezed. It's actually the same word that Jesus used when he talked about the narrow gate of the Christian life. It's, it's narrow, but it leads to life. That's the Christian life. The world is celebrating their freedom and technically they have lots of it. They can do whatever they want to, but that's the road that leads to death. You can, you can get away from affliction if you try really hard and ignore all your problems. The Christian life is filled of affliction, with affliction. Have you ever felt it? And it's a weird metaphor, but have you ever felt like God was squeezing you? Just the pressure won't lift, the anxiety, the pain, depression, it just won't go away and you feel like you're just being squeezed out. Read the Psalms. This is a, a very common place for God's people to be. Second, we're perplexed. I love this word. Actually, I don't love the idea, but this word I've been really meditating on quite a bit. We're lost and we have no resources to find our way. I was thinking this morning we're in the middle of the woods without a compass, but that, that didn't quite do it. Nobody uses compasses anymore. We're in the middle of the woods and we don't have our phone. <laughs> we, we don't know how to get home and we don't know which way and we're just, we're caught. And, and, and what did God do to our lives? We thought at the beginning of 2017 that we had this beautiful plan laid out and here we are at the end and we're like, what happened? I have no answers and I don't know what God is doing. Some of you are sitting in this church right now and you're wondering, what am I doing in Boone? Why am I here? Why did God bring me here? You did not see this at the beginning of the year, and now you're here. Some of you are sitting here and you're like, why am I still here? 25 years later, I'm still in Boone. I'm still, we don't know what God does to our lives. Sometimes we get perplexed. We're, we're just, why is he doing this to me? We're persecuted, we're sent on the run. It's a familiar concept. We're, we're, on, on, on the, we're being chased, we're being betrayed by our friends. Fourth, we're struck down. It's a powerful image, but one we don't typically think of when we think of God's servants. Beaten up physically, mentally, spiritually. You ever just felt bruised by Satan? Just beat up. Maybe you're feeling this way at the end of 2017. All of that's kind of encapsulated in this image in verse 10. We carry in our body the death of Jesus. It's a strong, strong image doesn't mean, when I, you first read this, you might think that we're like carrying around the body of Jesus. Most commentators say that the term there, it's, it's a tricky word that means that we're carrying the process of dying. The, the process of dying. In other words, we're carrying around the passion of Christ. That grueling march to the cross. That defines the Christian life. The passion of Jesus. We're constantly being given over to death for Christ's sake. Now, are these the images that come to your mind when you think of victorious Christian living? Life in the spirit. Are these the images that come to your mind? You might be asking, would God really put us through this kind of intense suffering? Does he really force us to embrace weakness? It was the question that the Corinthians were asking of Paul 
And it's the question that many comfortable Americans ask when we suffer. What, what is God doing? Why am I here? Why am I hurting so bad? Why doesn't he heal me? Why doesn't he answer me? And maybe you're wondering that at the end of 2017. You're broken, you're discouraging, demanding answers. Look at verse seven again. He brings us to, these place, to this place, brings us to these trials to teach us a lesson. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This was a lesson that Paul had to learn. This was not an abstract concept that he's saying, Corinthians, God will teach you a lesson through it, don't worry. This is a, a process that Paul was going through in that moment as he was writing the letter. We find in chapter 12 that God had given him a thorn in the flesh. What is it? I don't know. A messenger of Satan, that's all we know. That doesn't sound very fun a messenger of Satan, to torment him. Why? To keep him from being conceited. Earlier in that chapter, he described the scene of going to see the third heaven. What is that? I don't know, but Paul got to see it, and it sounds pretty awesome. And when you come back down from seeing the third heaven, you might be tempted to go, wow, God took me there. I must be special. I must be important. We always want to turn the glory into something that we've done. We, we like to steal that glory. Sometimes the kingdom of heaven breaks through and we get to see God's glorious power on display. Sometimes we witness miracles. It's incredible. And in those moments, it's always dangerous because we're always tempted to take the glory for ourselves. Paul would have been just as tempted as us. But God didn't allow Paul to brag about his vision, so he sent a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Here's the famous text. Paul begged for God to remove it which is an interesting point for us this morning. It's okay to pray for God to relieve suffering. It's okay. We don't have to want suffering. Paul didn't want it, certainly, but listen to this response in verse eight of chapter 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That response changed Paul's life. Because listen to what he says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Do you get glad when you speak of your weakness? Paul boasts gladly when he speaks of his weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest on me. I get glad when I think about that. The power of Christ resting on me. But you don't get that until you're glad about your weaknesses. God has brought me to this place to bring the power of God in my life. Verse 10, for this sake... For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults. I usually get wounded when people insult me. I don't know about you, but Paul's content because it illuminates his weakness. I'm content with hardships. I'm content with persecution. I'm content with calamity. I have a hard time saying that out loud because that's the unspeakable fear in my mind. Please, Lord, no. But Paul recognizes that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I recently heard a story about St. Francis. Someone asked him how he was able to accomplish so much in his ministry. How do you do it? This is a trick question, okay? This is a trap. And when you're ever asked this, it, it'll reveal the place of your heart. Let's say that 2018 is a really good year for you. You lay out some good resolutions and you just crush it. You read through your Bible four times. 
Every quarter, you decide, I'm just gonna read through the Bible again real quick this summer. Right, you just get through it. You witness to everyone on your street, everyone in your neighborhood, and they all come to know Christ. You send three missionaries, you know, from, the, from your neighbors. They, you just send them out to foreign countries and you write a book about your experience of 2018 and you start three nonprofit ministries and things are going really well for you. And inevitably, you'll get, you know, asked to be on the TV shows and the interview circuit. And how did you do it? That's the question that people want to know. What is your trick? You can go to the bookstore and find people writing tons of books. What's the trick of your ministry? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> I'd be tempted, man, I would eat that up. I would be tempted to say, well, man, it all started January 1st. I, I was disciplined this year and I actually did it. And just, man, the Lord blessed my hands. Praise God, right? But I did it and we did it. So Francis, how do you do so much work? Listen to his reply. This may be why. The Lord looked down from heaven and said, where can I find the weakest, littlest man on earth? And then he saw me and said, I found him. He won't be proud of it. He'll see that I'm only using him because of his insignificance. God has given us this glorious ministry, but he's put it in jars of clay to show that the power doesn't come from us. It comes from him. So we've established that the ministry is glorious, but it's painful it emphasizes our weaknesses, but I hope you can see by now, already in the text, it's not bad. It's not discouraging. In fact, it is filled with hope. And this is our third and final point. Look at verses 16 to 18. Throughout the book of Second Corinthians, he's gonna say this over and over. We don't lose heart. We're not discouraged. He says it right here in 16. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There are some incredible statements of hope in this text. And if you're struggling this morning, I want you to be encouraged by this paragraph. You can have hope in the midst of your suffering. I want to point out three ways that Paul directs our hearts to be hopeful. First, he's very clear, and this is a theme throughout the New Testament. Your suffering and weakness is temporary. It has an expiration date. And what I used to think that meant is that maybe by the spring or maybe by the summer, I'll be better. No, 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 no. It has an expiration date when you see Jesus face to face. That's when it stops, but it will stop. The suffering will stop. We must embrace it as a lifestyle now, but know and be encouraged that it's passing away. The suffering that everyone sees in your life is transient. Paul wants us, in fact, to take the, the focus off of, off of the suffering now and put it on the future glory. That will sustain us through the suffering. Look at verse 17. This light momentary weakness is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Wow. Did you catch what he just did? All of the pain that you feel, all of the pain that you brought into this room and the weakness and the anxiety and the, the guilt and the suffering, it's not even worth comparing to that day when you see Jesus face to face. It's not even worth comparing. Think about this. We can put all the suffering in this room. If we were to let everybody just share their stories we would be crushed with the weight of the grief. There is some immense suffering in this room. We could take all of that suffering 
And all of the suffering in our town, you know people that are broken. All of the suffering on App State's campus. All of the suffering in our country. All of the suffering in our world from the billions of people. And even more, all of the people that have ever lived. And you can put that on one side of a scale. Can you imagine the weight of that grief? Paul says it's not even a comparison to the future weight of glory that will be revealed. Take hope in that. Our weakness is temporary. It's passing away. Second, we can find hope in the fact that we will endure. So you're struggling now, and you might be thinking, I, I don't know if I can make it. You can. You will, actually. You will endure. In the previous section, I outlined all of the painful things that come with the Christian life. The gospel ministry breaks us down, but in each of these scenarios, Paul gave a gracious promise that accompanies them. Let's look at it again. We're afflicted in every way squeezed by God, but we're not crushed. We haven't popped yet. You may think you have, but you haven't. We're perplexed, we're confused, we're lost, we don't know what to do, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. God brings us to the end of ourselves, but he doesn't end us. The fact that you're still standing this morning, still pushing, is a sign of the Holy Spirit in your life. It looks different than what you might have thought. But the fact that you're persevering through your struggling is a sign of the Spirit's work in your life. Be encouraged by that. Take hope. You've, you may have been knocked down, but you've not been knocked out of the race. You're still standing, and you'll make it. You will. He who started a good work in your life will see it through to the day you make it safely home in his kingdom. Finally, the suffering we experience in this life gives us hope because it is a sign that we are being transformed. We know that we're being transformed when we suffer. Pain isn't pointless. God doesn't just afflict you because as an experiment. We're not like lab rats that he's just trying, oh, wonder what happens when I do this to them. Oh, it's not good. It's not pointless. There's a point to your suffering and to your pain. When the spirit of God entered your broken life, he waged war with your flesh. That is a good thing. It doesn't feel pleasant. Believe me, I know it doesn't feel pleasant, but he waged war with your flesh to eradicate it. Look at verse 16 again. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I want you to take great hope in this fact. Your outer self, the, the, the self that you inherited from Adam, your arrogance, your pride, your sins, it's getting weak. It's wasting away. The Holy Spirit is targeting it and attacking it and taking it away. And that the life that you inherited by Jesus Christ, that's getting stronger every day. We're being transformed into his glorious image. Let me summarize the chapter and give a few thoughts for the new year. The ministry of the new covenant is extremely glorious. It's better than operating under the law like the false teachers were. It's better it's incredible. It's more glorious than we even know, but God puts it in jars of clay, cracked pots, so that he can get the glory, so that his glory will shine through, so that when people look at us, they'll say, oh man, your God is incredible. They won't say, you're incredible. They'll say, your God is incredible. This means that the, the people that will experience the most power and glory on this planet are the weak ones, the people that have been forgotten, walk with a limp, they cry, they struggle, they can't seem to put things together. That's the people that God uses for his glorious kingdom. So in light of this, let's think about our new year. So 
Happy New Year. I hope it's a great year. I, I, I want to give you a couple of thoughts just to apply this as you're making resolutions and as you want to get a good start to the year. First, don't reject weakness in 2018. As I mentioned, I tend to use the New Year's celebration as a chance for me to stuff my weaknesses. If I feel weak, kind of scrawny, kind of out of shape, I feel that way. You know what I want to do? I want to hit the gym. I want to stuff that because I don't like feeling weak. If I feel insecure, I want to read a book. I want to feel kind of smart and I want to let you know it too because that way I don't feel weak because my pride cannot stand the feeling of weakness. I've got to compensate. And I've noticed that a lot of the times in the new year, all I'm doing is compensating and trying to, to wriggle out of my weaknesses. Don't do that. Paul said that he learned how to be content with his weaknesses and insults and calamities. If God's brought you to this place of discouragement, don't stuff it. See why. Explore it. Second, if you're going to reject anything, reject your pride. Your pride is the only thing that is keeping you from experiencing the transforming power of God. Your pride stands in the way. And so if you want to see transformation and growth next year, reject your pride. But here's the catch. That's really hard to do. In fact, you can't do it on your own. If you've ever tried, you'll, you'll understand. I, I recently read about Benjamin Franklin's program of self-improvement. Franklin was crazy. He wasn't a Christian, but he liked Christian virtues, and so he vigorously pursued them. He decided to pick out 12 virtues. I, I, I guess if you're God, you can do that. You can pick out the 12 virtues that you want to pursue. And so he picked out 12. And he said that like a gardener, he would go out and weed every day, and he would pay, to pay very close attention to these virtues, and he wanted to improve. And according to himself, he did pretty good. He was extremely diligent. So I want you to feel a little ashamed as you make resolutions next year. Franklin did it better than you. He like had a ledger every night that he would like write down his growth and he would track his success. And according to himself, he's like, man, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> he said, he, you know, he, I'm more temperate. I'm more frugal. I'm more sincere. But it took a Mennonite friend of his to come up to him and say, yeah, but you're kind of a jerk too. <laughs> you you're kind of pretty proud and arrogant of all your accomplishments. And so you know what he did? He added a 13th virtue, humility. And he set about working to become humble. This is just a train wreck waiting to happen. Listen to his reflections. And this is actually, to his credit, a very self-aware quote. Listen to this. In reality, there's perhaps not one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it's still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. You'll see it perhaps often in this history. For even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I probably should be proud of my humility. Isn't that the case? That's a true statement. You can't kill your pride. You can't renounce it. And yet, that is the only thing keeping you from experiencing the transforming power of God this year. What do we do? God, God's really good at killing your pride. I can't do it. You can't do it. But God can. He can gently dismantle you. And so as you think about the new year, humbly submit your life to God. It'll hurt. I think of uh, 
Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Guy gets turned into a dragon. He tries to take it off himself. He can't. And God comes, or the Aslan comes and pulls off. It hurts so bad. But he was a new person. Embrace your weakness, not as a season, but as a lifestyle. Rest in Jesus and seek him in prayer. Summary of the whole thing. Worship the Lord in 2018. Behold his glory and watch God transform your life. To close, I want to show a video from J.I. Packer. Brilliant man, but he wouldn't tell you that. And then we'll sing one more song. In our society, strength, or at least imagined strength, is applauded. And weakness is thought of as a defect. It means that you've missed the best in life. From the age of seven, I felt weak. I was chased out into the street by a fellow student at the school I was attending. I collided with a truck. As you would expect, the truck got the better of the exchange. They were afraid that my brain might have suffered as a result of the accident. I didn't use the word weak in those days to describe how I was feeling about myself. That is the word that catches the feeling. I can still remember the feelings. Well, this is Packer's testimony to the reality of weakness. I have now reached the point in life where inevitably I am wearing out physically. I can't have many more years to go. And as I'm conscious of wearing out physically, I find myself feeling weak. So I'm back with the theme of weakness because of what has happened to me and what is happening to me now as an old man whose body is wearing out. God doesn't allow us to stay with the idea that we are strong. Oh, we may have that idea. But the Lord is going to disabuse us one way or another. And it will be good for us, and it will give glory to him when he does so. Lest I should be puffed up because of the abundance of revelations that God had given me, I was given a thorn in the flesh. The Lord spoke to me, and this is what he said. My strength is made perfect in your weakness.